You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In the old Roadrunner cartoons, Wile E. Coyote would frequently find himself running off the edge of a cliff. But he wouldn't, as our experience with gravity might lead us to expect, start falling to the ground below, at least not right away. Instead, he would hover, motionless in puzzlement. It was only when he realized there was no longer any ground beneath him that he would suddenly crash downward. We are all Wile E. Coyote. Since human beings began thinking about things, we have contemplated our place in the universe, the reason why we are all here. Many possible answers have been put forward, and partisans of one view or another have occasionally disagreed with each other. But for a long time, there's been a shared view that there is some meaning out there somewhere waiting to be discovered and acknowledged. There's a point to all this. Things happen for a reason. This conviction has served as the ground beneath our feet, as the foundation on which we've constructed all the principles by which we live our lives. Gradually, our confidence in this view has begun to erode. As we understand the world better, the idea that it has a transcendent purpose seems increasingly untenable. The old picture has been replaced by a wondrous new one, one that is breathtaking and exhilarating in many ways, challenging and vexing in others. It is a view in which the world stubbornly refuses to give us any direct answers about the bigger questions of purpose and meaning. Sean Carroll is a cosmologist and physics professor specializing in dark energy and general relativity. He's a research professor in the Department of Physics at Caltech. His books include Space-Time and Geometry, An Introduction to General Relativity, From Eternity to Here, The Quest for the Ultimate Theory of Time, The Particle at the End of the Universe, How the Hunt for the Higgs Boson Leads Us to the Edge of a New World. His new book is The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning, and the Universe Itself. Thank you for joining me, Sean. Thanks very much for having me. Sean, this is such a fascinating book because you start from... Aristotle and our first understandings to the universe and take us on a whirlwind tour up to the meaning of life and (laughs) in the present day. That's a pretty big uh, journey. And it's an interesting take for a physics professor to write. What led you to write a book that is about the meaning of of life. That's yeah. a big deal. Well, you know, I, I do want everyone to realize that I don't actually tell anybody what the meaning of life is. I, I also don't say where the universe started or how life began. But what I do try to do is sketch out a framework in which we can talk about these questions. I do think that science and, and human knowledge more generally has advanced that far. And the reason why I wanted to do it was because I do think that physics describes the world at a certain fundamental level, and we live in the world. We human beings, we institutions that we construct and so forth, these are all part of the physical world. And so at some level, even though we have many different ways of talking about the world, they have to agree with each other. They have to be consistent. So if you think that life started as some sort of chemical process in the early Earth, if you think that consciousness is the motion of atoms in our brain, 
green in some way, if you think that purpose and meaning are things that we need to construct for ourselves in the world, it all has to tie together somehow. And that's what I was trying to sketch out. That's a big goal, but I think you accomplished it. And at the beginning, you say that you have two goals in front of us. One is to explain the story of the universe, and the other is to offer existential therapy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an unusual goal. What, what is existential therapy? Yeah, so another way of saying those two goals is first to explain that the world is the single natural world. There's nothing else out there other than the natural world. And second to say, that's okay. <laughs> I think that this is the Wiley Coyote metaphor that we think that, you know, things like meaning and purpose in our traditional way of thinking about them are things that we get from somewhere else, things that are given to us from outside or even from the universe itself. And this naturalist point of view that says the world is just the physical world doing its stuff doesn't offer that possibility. So you might worry that therefore there is no such thing as meaning or purpose. It's all meaningless. And that's where the existential anxiety comes from. But I think that it's just a misunderstanding of what meaning and purpose can be. There's no problem at all in thinking of those things as things that come from within ourselves. I think one of the things I think you do so well in this book is to understand the import. And, and I, I dare to say that this book is all about story. Yeah, and the stories I'm happy we tell to ourselves. That. Yes, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, the specific version of naturalism that I like to talk about in the book, I call poetic naturalism, because it really uh, emphasizes that even though there's only one world, there are many different ways we can talk about that world, many different stories we can tell. Individual scientific theories of the world are different stories in some sense. There's a story of atoms and particles. There's another story of cells and organisms. There are stories that we can tell of psychology and motivations. But then there are stories that aren't purely scientific, stories that, of, of judgment and evaluation of saying, like, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And those are stories that we have different criteria for choosing what are the ones that we really want to tell. Those choices are what bring the world to life in a very real way. I think that understanding uh, the different levels of reality as you explain them is so helpful. I also think it's interesting that in a way physicists, I think of this book and Lisa Randall's most recent book, physicists are writing books that are subtly and subversively political. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I, I try not to be explicitly political. You aren't. But I, but I also think that there are political implications. You know, mm -hmm. I think that uh, it does matter what we think about the fundamental nature of reality. If anything, I, I, I say in the book, I would rather talk to somebody who disagrees with me about the fundamental nature of reality but still cares about it <laughs> than somebody who just doesn't care at all because I think it does have implications for choices we make about what is right and what is wrong, how we should behave as stewards of the earth on which we live. As stewards of the earth, we started that journey a long time ago, and you start us a long time ago, with Aristotle and the kind of stories he told about the world. And I think that understanding that humans are a narrative species and we don't ever exist in stillness. Everything we have, every moment, every thought we have is part of a plot that's leading us, that's driven by the arrow of time. Yeah, one of the uh, 
chapters that I wrote for the book but that didn't make it in was an actual defense of Aristotle because in many ways I'm responding against Aristotle. Mm -hmm. That's a very traditional thing for modern physicists to do because Aristotle was not right about a lot of the foundations that we now think of as physics. But he was a genius and he was right about trying to explain the everyday world in many ways. We now have a deeper level that we go to when we try to explain the world. But he told a story of, for example, cause and effect. The fact that to get something moving, you have to push it. And to keep it moving, you have to keep pushing it. Modern physics says, oh, no, no, that's not true. Momentum is conserved. Things move by themselves. But we can't forget that in the real world, if you turn off the engine of your car and you stop pushing it, it will stop going. That, that was correct. <laughs> that was not a mistake. So the real goal of the big picture is to show how all of these stories can be compatible with each other in some deep way. I That's one of the things I really loved about this book. It's almost like a series of Russian nested dolls, isn't it? <laughs> well, the structure, you know, which chapters come first and so forth, was one of the most difficult things to put together. It's very, very clever. It really makes this book like it an arrow of time, the arrow of time that you refer to so often in it. I do, you know, I, I always have, I hold up as the goal for mm -hmm. the perfect book would be one in which, you know, once you've read a certain number of words, the next set of words is just logically inevitable. Like it had to follow, right? Like once you've gone this far, this is what happens next. Now, I can't possibly reach that. And in fact, it's a very uh, episodic book in a lot of ways. There's a lot of chapters. They're very short. It's made to be read on the subway or, or in short snatches here and there. But they do hopefully fit together to make the bigger tapestry make sense. Okay. Let's start with... Uh one of your chapters and one of the notions that's central to the book. I want to explore this idea a little more. Poetic naturalism. This is the what you feel is the best possible way for us to handle all the levels of reality that science has revealed to us and that society itself and involves us in, which are two very, very different things. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that is not very obvious in the public discussion is that naturalists who believe in the only single natural world, you know, we spend a lot of time in the public sphere fighting against religion. Because we still live in a world, you know, in the United States especially, where religion is an important part of our public discourse. And what that disguises is the fact that naturalists don't agree with each other. And I think that's okay. I think it's good. You know, we don't have all the answers. So we have different takes on things. And I, I think that poetic naturalism is situated in between two different extremes. One is a sort of very austere naturalism that says that the only thing that we should be talking about are the fundamental constituents of reality, that, you know, tables and chairs are not real. All that's real are the atoms and the particles of which they're made. I think that goes too far. I like to live in a world where tables and chairs are considered to be real. <laughs> On the other hand, there are even naturalists who aren't quite satisfied with the physical world all by itself. They want to add something to it, whether they admit it or not. They want to add, you know, objective moral truths, for example, or they want to add mental conscious properties to physical matter over and above their physical properties. And I think that that's also a mistake, that these aren't really things we should add to the natural world. These are ways of talking about the natural world. They're good ways. They're real ways. The poetic of poetic naturalism says that these stories that we tell about the world are really true ways of apprehending it. If the stories are right, there's false stories, of course, but the true stories, and there are many of them, 
fit together, are compatible with each other, and have a claim to reality, while at the same time being stories of the same underlying universe. Now, one of the things that interested me was you write early on, we invent the concept of a ship because it's useful to us, not because it's already there at the deepest level of reality. So this is a a takedown of the Platonic ideals. Oh, very much. Yes. You know, um, uh, what can I say? I think that uh, I'm not a Platonist. And I really think that, in fact, that that's crucially important for this kind of worldview shift that Mm -hmm. that we need to undergo because... We do think, and and this becomes even more clear in the most political chapter in the book where I talk about gender identity and and gender identification, we think of the categories that we use to describe the world as sort of absolute. There is a ship or there isn't, or there is a man or there is a woman, there's a boy or a girl, people have rights, marriage is a certain way, a person is uh, this kind of thing and not this other kind of thing. And... It's, I think it's very, very important to recognize just from a scientific and philosophical perspective that these are categories we invent. They are not part of the world all by itself that are forced on us by our investigations of the world. We are able to interrogate the extent to which these categories, these classifications are useful. They will, they will be very, very useful in some circumstances, not so useful in other ones. If you think that they're absolute and given to you by the universe without the possibility of being changed, then you're stringing yourself to a very, very narrow and insufficient way of looking at reality. And one of the things that's really critical to understand about science is that science is not about proving stuff so much as it is about disproving stuff. I mean, those two things, forces balance out in the world of science. It's definitely about disproving things, but even more, it's about creeping up on what are better and better approximations to the true reality. Science doesn't ever claim to have 100% confidence in anything at all. That's why science is different than math or logic. You know, in math, two plus two just equals four. There's not really, it's not four (laughs) plus or minus a little bit. It's exactly four, right? Whereas in science, no matter how good your theories are, whether it's Newtonian mechanics or Einsteinian relativity or quantum mechanics, they're always provisional. You know, we're quite confident that they work in a certain regime, but if new data comes along and changes our minds, then we will change our minds. It's Zeno's paradox. <laughs> well, it's but it's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, Zeno's paradox says we'll never get there because we move sh- shorter and shorter distances. In terms of physical motion, that was not right. We can actually get from here to there. But in terms of thinking about our knowledge of the world, that is exactly right. You're correct. Uh, I love this idea of telling stories about the world. And I, I think... What interested me, too, is your portrait of the scientist when you introduce us to Isaac Newton, whose work is very old, but still I think most of us really live at this point. Most of the humanity lives in a Newtonian world, I think. Yeah, that's right. And so it lives in a Newtonian world to some extent or an Aristotelian world to some extent, right? right? You know, it shouldn't be surprising that over the years... Brilliant people like Aristotle and Newton and and Galileo and Plato and others tried to make sense of the world that they could actually experience in front of them. As we have better and better technology and instruments to probe the world at the microscopic level, at the cosmic level, and so forth, we discover new phenomena and we have to invent new ideas. And those ideas very naturally 
start to diverge from our intuitions, right? From our from our feelings, our heuristics, our inclinations for thinking how the world should work based on our everyday experiences. So to some extent, we're Newtonians, but even there, you know, it was Pierre-Simone Laplace who first figured out that this Newtonian clockwork universe has properties that are a little weird to our mm. intuition, right? That if you knew everything that was going on in the world right now and you had infinite computational capacity, you could know what would happen at any moment in the future and what did happen at any moment in the past. That's, that's something that our minds have a little bit of difficulty wrapping themselves around. And that's because we are not Laplace's demon. And Laplace, that's if, right. there's, if there's a main character in this book, that's, <laughs> that's Laplace's demon. So tell us a little bit about Laplace's demon. You He's, know, Laplace never called it uh, the demon. Laplace was a flinty guy uh, who didn't ever talk about things that he didn't need to. So he introduced this, what he called a vast intellect. Mm. And it's interesting. The way that I like to say it is that even though Isaac Newton invented Newtonian mechanics, classical mechanics, even Newton didn't really internalize it. You know, like very often in science, the first person to invent an idea is not the one who understands it the best, right? Mm -hmm. We need to sort of improve ourselves. I think that Laplace was really the first to sort of get classical mechanics in his bones and really sort of appreciate what it implied. So what Laplace said was that if you had this vast intellect that knew what everything in the world was doing at any one moment in time, past, present, or future, and this vast intellect knew the laws of physics and could calculate what was going to happen, it would be absolutely deterministic. To that vast intellect, events in the past and future would be just as clear and knowable as events for the right now. And this is, it's so interesting because the way you express it and the way he expressed it, I mean, that just makes, I think, anybody who's listening think of a giant, if we could build a computer big enough, it could figure out everything. <laughs> that's right. And so if you believe in the laws of physics, you believe that that's true. In one of the, in the appendix for the book, I give the laws of physics. So in principle, you could do it. You could put it on your computer. Because this is the kind of question that scientists ask themselves. They have asked, you know, how big would the computer have to be to be Laplace's <laughs> demon? The answer is basically as big as the universe, right? Uh, Laplace's demon is very much a thought experiment. It's very much a, a matter of principle that the world that obeys these laws is in principle predictable. In practice, our information of the world is always woefully incomplete and imprecise. There are chaotic effects, so small differences in knowing what will happen lead to large differences in the future predictions and so forth. So Laplace's demon is in no sense a practical worry, but it is a way of thinking about how the laws of physics work at a deep level. As I read this book, I was thinking, too, about the um, way you were talking about how um, each generation of physics um, takes the other one and internalizes the previous generation. And I'm thinking that, well, I mean, how many centuries has it been since Aristotle? How many since, since Newton? It's not a surprise that people of the 20th and 21st century are looking at uh, relativity and quantum mechanics and string theory and thinking, well, this is just complete gobbledygook. I mean, 300 <laughs> right. years from now, that stuff might be completely internalized by both the scientists and the society. It might be. That would be the best. Mm -hmm. I, I do think that it sort of becomes harder and harder to do that internalizing because the concepts become less and less familiar in every day. Uh, 
Newtonian mechanics is sort of harder to understand to the typical person than Aristotelian mechanics is. Statistical mechanics from the 19th century is harder to understand than Newtonian mechanics. Quantum mechanics is harder to understand than statistical mechanics and so forth. But, but you're right. Once the ideas filter out, you know, once ideas like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle enter there into the popular domain, Schrodinger's cat and so forth, I do think we come closer and closer to thinking that the, that's just the way the universe works rather than this is some you know, intimidating collection of gobbledygook words that the physicists make up just to employ themselves. I, I think one of the notions that's really key to understanding what you're talking about in this book is this idea of levels of granularity. Uh, this book is essentially a journey through different, um, ever decreasing or increasing, depending on how you want to look at it, levels of granularity. And each level of granularity has its own storytelling style that suits that level of granularity. And for very small levels of granularity, where we're at now with the gluon and right. up and up quarks and down quarks and the Higgs boson, that story becomes somewhat impenetrable to the average human, but also um, the storytelling style is very different. So take us down to the finest level of granularity we have in storytelling today. Right. And of course, we don't know what the ultimate level might be. So mm -hmm. you're very correct to emphasize, you know, the finest level we have today. And in fact, you know, it's it's one that we almost never talk about in popular discussions of physics just because we're a little bit stuck with the issue of quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. right? In some way, if you want to know what is the what is the finest level of granularity we have right now, the answer is quantum field theory. That's what you study if you're a physics graduate student and you're trying to learn how to do modern physics. The idea that all of the particles that we talk about, you know, the electrons, the photons, and so forth, these are really vibrations in fields that fill all of space. That space itself is suffused with these energy fields that are gently vibrating. And when you observe these fields, you see them as individual particles. If they're not vibrating very much, you don't see any particles there. Once they start vibrating a lot, you see a bunch of particles. And this is all sort of an almost inevitable consequence of combining together quantum mechanics and special relativity, Einstein's theory that you can't go faster than the speed of light and so forth. So right now, if you wanted to say, what is the world? At its most fundamental level, according to our current understanding, the collection is a set of interacting quantum fields. We don't think that's going to last necessarily. You know, that we have the big, pro the big problem of space and time themselves. Are they fundamental or are they just emergent out of some even deeper level? I think that in quantum field theory, we take them as fundamental. Many of us, including myself, think that they are emergent from something even deeper than that. Well, that's so interesting. I have to ask, because you mentioned gravity and discussions of uh, our lack of understanding of gravity. But as I understand it, there have been we've just seen gravity waves. Am I correct about that? That's right. How, how does that affect what's in your book? It doesn't. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> that was something that was going to be true. Well, let's say let's put it this way. It would have affected it a great deal if somehow we showed that there was no such thing as gravity mm. waves, gravitational waves. The climate scientists insist that we say gravitational waves because for them gravity waves is an atmospheric phenomenon which is very very different than the general relativity phenomenon we're talking about. So, Einstein predicted gravitational waves almost 100 years ago. He uh, changed his mind back and forth several times over the course of his life. But 
by the 1960s, we had established more or less beyond reasonable doubt that they were real. Uh, it's just a matter of how hard would it be to detect them. And the answer was, it's really, really hard. <laughs> people tried for a long time. We finally did it. I think that the three people who are most responsible for building LIGO, the observatory that made it happen, are likely to win the Nobel Prize next year, if not, if not this year. But that's still a prediction of classical general relativity. We don't need to know quantum gravity to quite get there. Now, hopefully, this new tool that we have to look at the universe, the gravitational waves, will end up teaching us something about the interaction of quantum mechanics and gravity, and that will help us move forward. One of the things I think that you do very well is as you adjust the level of granularity, you talk about how something that exists as a discrete phenomenon at one level will be an emergent phenomenon at the next, but that the emergent description might not might have a lot of conflicts with what's going on underneath. And I think that that's a hard thing to wrap your brain around, but you do a great job of explaining it. So, Yeah, it's very, very crucial to the whole story that there are properties that might be absolutely central and, and you know, fundamental at one level that is completely missing at some other level. And the, the most obvious example is the arrow of time, as, as you mentioned, the fact that we draw a strong distinction between the past and the future, right? We remember the past. We don't remember the future. Hopefully, you don't remember the future. Uh, we were all younger once. We, we will eventually be older. That's uniform for everyone that we know. And that's completely absent from our fundamental physics description of the world. If you, if you were Laplace's demon, there's no such thing as the arrow of time. So that's a, that's a crucial insight because nobody denies this, right? I mean, this is uncontroversial that at the level of fundamental physics, as we understand it right now, things are reversible. The past and future are the same. At the emergent level of the everyday, things are highly irreversible, and there's a strong arrow of time. And that suggests that other phenomena like life, like consciousness, like free will— they can be part of our best description of the macroscopic everyday human world, even though they're nowhere to be found at the underlying level of particles and fields. Let's. One of the things you do a great job of in this book is integrating, taking us from physics to philosophy. And I think that's a, a really necessary, these two disciplines, I think they should work a lot closer, it seems. And you do a good job of integrating them. So Take us from physics to philosophy and Ludwig Wittgenstein. <laughs> well, I think that it depends on what kind of physics you're talking about. Mm -hmm. There's lots of physicists who uh, denigrate philosophy, and in part, they shouldn't denigrate it, but they're, it's okay if they want to ignore it. You know, mm -hmm. For most of physics, philosophy is not very helpful. If you want to calculate the spectrum of some uh, atom giving off radiation, you don't call in a philosopher to help you out. <laughs> no. But at some level where you're trying to ask these foundational questions, either about the emergence of space and time in reality itself, or how those levels connect with higher levels of biology and uh, human sciences and so forth, then philosophy becomes absolutely crucial. So, for example, we have the question of when are we certain that something is true in the world? And I've already said the answer to some strict level is never. In science, we're never, ever, ever certain. But Wittgenstein, one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, interestingly, when he was a young man, that's what he believed. He believed you could just never be certain. You could just never know. And the example given by Bertrand Russell is that Russell said, like, 
do I know there's not a rhinoceros in this room? And Wittgenstein said, no, you don't know that for sure. And Russell sort of looked under the table and said, I don't see one here. (laughs) Isn't that pretty good evidence? And Wittgenstein said, nope, it's not 100%. Later in life, he came around to a point of view that, you know, if that was your criterion, then you could never say anything. Like if you could never say anything unless you had 100% certainty and you never get 100% certainty, that's a useless way to go through your life, right? So instead, we should be able to say that certain things are true and it's knowledge and we can accept them, even though it's only 99.999% certain and not quite 100%. And this gets to, I think, the heart of a lot of the debate around science and the idea that Evolution is, quote, a theory, which is to say, by its detractors, it hasn't been proved. And you say the best way to ask a, you, you give us <laughs> the the news the news uh, uh, anchor's guide to discomfiting a science. That's right. If you want to make a scientist, you know, fumble and, and lose their place, just ask them to prove what they're saying, because scientists. In their training, they took a lot of math classes, right? And so they know what it means to prove something mathematically. It really does mean beyond any possible doubt. Whereas science is never like that. There's no claim in science that is true beyond any possible doubt. Like we believe that you can't travel faster than the speed of light. But if some experiment came along that incontrovertibly said you could, then we would change our minds about that. And I think that the point here is that the way that scientists think of the word proof is just different than the way the person on the street or even in a court of law would think of the word proof. You know, informally, we think of proof as a demonstration of something that we would all accept as settling the fact that that thing is true. Scientists have a higher standard. So by scientists' own standards, science never proves anything at all. You do a lot of... uh thought experiments in this book. And I think the idea of a thought experiment is crucial both to this book and to science because this is an, this is an experiment, a scientific procedure that exists entirely in story. Yeah, I think that thought, thought experiments are wonderful things. They're never sufficient, right? It's the real experiments that are really going to help you out. But as a theoretical physicist or a theoretical scientist, we use thought experiments just to figure out what the implications of our ideas are, and especially if our ideas are uh, logically consistent with themselves. My favorite thought experiment of all time goes back to Galileo, and he was, again, sort of reacting against Aristotle and or the more generally ancient Greek idea that if you have objects falling, the heavier they are, the faster they fall. And so Galileo said, if that's true, imagine that I have two objects that are falling. So they're, they're not falling as fast as they would if they were just one, right? Because if they were one object, that would be heavier. But what if I tie a really light little thread in between them? Does that make them one and suddenly they start falling faster? That doesn't really seem to make sense. So he was able to sort of come to the conclusion that that way of thinking couldn't be right even before doing the experiments. Well, you do some thought experiments in here with regards to trying to understand the implications of the existence of God. And I think that this is a really fascinating turn for you to take. And it's a, you know, potentially a very political one as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think that uh, nevertheless, the aim of the book is to get to the truth. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the questions I get from people who are not already convinced that I'm on the right track in, in this kind of thinking are, 
you know, wouldn't it be terrible if that were right, if there was no God out there to tell us right from wrong, if there were no objective moral standards? You know, like I said, even the naturalists who don't believe in God, if you don't believe there are objective moral truths, wouldn't that be terrible? And of course, the answer is it doesn't matter if it would be terrible if it's true. You know, let's first establish what the truth is and then try to live within a world that is described by accurate representations of it. God is certainly an example of that. And I do the thought experiments that you mentioned because I place a heavy emphasis on the book in what what is called Bayesian reasoning, Mm -hmm. a way of thinking about how to improve our understanding of the world by saying we start with some beliefs. Then we collect new information, new data or new ideas. And then we update our beliefs. You know, some look better, some like more, more likely to be true. Some look worse or less likely to be true. And that's a constant process of collecting new information and updating our beliefs. But to do that, we really need to be honest about the question, if this idea were true, what is the probability that the universe would look this way or that way or some other way? So if you really want to believe in God, you shouldn't say, well, this or that phenomenon of the world, I can explain it by using a a theory of view of the world in which God exists. That's not sufficient. What you should do is say, what is the probability that that feature of the world would be true if God existed? You have to imagine doing a thought experiment of what would the world probably be like? if God had created it. And I think that if you're honest about doing that, you end up predicting a universe that is very different than the one we live in. The world we live in is composed for, from one perspective, at least at one level, of atoms and molecules. Those make up the stuff of life. But you have to add the life force, right? It's like Frankenstein with the lightning. (laughs) Well, the lightning was a pretty down-to-earth thing, right? Uh Lightning is definitely part of the physical world. Uh, I do, in the book, go to some length of talking about in the old days, there there was a strong thought that there was some life force, some elan vital, some stuff that filled up living beings and left them when they died. And it's very interesting. This was apparently just the way people thought in the 19th century about lots of things, because we also thought about things like heat, and the ability to have combustion going on as substances. If you think about heat, it actually kind of makes sense to think of it as a substance. If you put two objects next to each other, one is hot and one is cold, and you make them touch each other, they begin to equilibrate, right? They come to the same temperature. And it's very much like a fluid moving from the hotter one to the cooler one. It's a sensible way of thinking. It's also completely untrue. Heat is not a fluid. It's the motion of the internal motion of the molecules inside the body. Likewise, it makes perfect sense to think that life is a substance that leaves the body when you die. When you see something die, it seems like something has changed, something has left. But it's not true. Life is a process, not a substance. Life is a set of things happening in your body, just like when you snuff out a candle and it stops burning, the candle didn't really change. That process came to an end. I think you said something really important, and I just want to bring this back, which is that it makes perfect. You said you were referring to a couple times when we were just talking. You said it makes perfect sense, but it's completely untrue. Right. I think we better wrap <laughs> our brains around those two things immediately, and there should be, you know, dueling bumper stickers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, the wonderful thing about science is that, or even philosophy or any sort of rigorous way of thinking, is that 
what we end up deciding is true might be very different than our first impressions, might be very different than the natural way we have of thinking about the world. The fact that the Earth is a sphere that rotates and, and uh, revolves around the sun, these are not obvious things, right? You know, from us standing on the Earth, it kind of looks like the sun is moving around us. And in fact, there's a famous story about Wittgenstein where he was saying, you know, why was anybody surprised when we learned that the Earth rotated and went around the sun rather than the other way around? And someone said, well, it looks like the sun is going around the Earth. And Wittgenstein said, well, how would it have looked <laughs> if the Earth were just rotating? It would have looked exactly like that. So these little flashes of insight can change our ideas about what makes sense. But I, I, I like to emphasize the fact that a lot of these ideas that I think are wrong weren't stupid. They weren't sort of just mistakes that were obvious to make. It's that as our understanding of the world improves, our ideas get better and better. And we need to be able to discard the old ones while admitting that there was, at the time, a good reason for thinking they might be right. Let's ratchet this up to the level of the living. Uh, what do we understand about life? I, for me, the my favorite take has always been Kurt Vonnegut. I think it was Breakfast of Champions that he saw us as like a walking chemical reaction. Mm -hmm. I think that's more or less basically the, the current view. And we have this wonderful unanswered question of how life actually began. Uh, it's a little bit weird that in some ways we know more about the early universe than we know about the early form of life, right? <laughs> that is uh, odd, but it's true. And you, give a, you talk, do a great job of dividing up the uh, the schools here. So. Yeah, there's there's different theories for what happened. You know, just to, to dramatically oversimplify things, I focus on three things that you need to get life going. One is you need compartmentalization. That is to, to, need, to say you need skin, right? At the level of an individual cell, you need a cell wall to say what is inside the cell and what is outside. Then you need metabolism. The cell needs to be able to eat, right, to bring in food and use that to do something and then expel waste. And finally, you need replication. You need this wonderful idea that there is some way that a cell or some other living being can pass down the blueprints for its own structure to a new generation. And then, of course, since that passing down is never perfect, that enables natural selection and evolution to go on. So we don't know which of these three aspects, compartmentalization, metabolism, replication, which of them came first. Interestingly to me, the compartmentalization, the existence of a cell wall, is the easiest problem to solve. That one is more or less we have examples in the lab where these cell walls just come into existence all by themselves. It's, it's great. you know, <laughs> These fatty uh, lipids and so forth just can assemble themselves in, in more or less the right way. The others are tricky, and so there's a metabolism-first camp that thinks that getting the chemical reactions to feed off the energy in the environment is very, very difficult, and getting that to work first is uh, necessary, and then later it can start to replicate itself. There's the other camp, the replication-first camp, that says that somehow these molecules, like RNA is, is the favorite example, these information-carrying molecules come into existence, and then they sort of find themselves an engine to keep going and to keep living. So ultimately, all of these different aspects are going to have to happen in one order or another. And I think it's a very, very exciting time to be looking at the laboratory experiments and the theories in this area. Let's take a couple quick steps up the arrow of time to humans. Right. Here we are. We're walking around. We're thinking. Thinking must... The fact that we think 
must mean that thinking is different from 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 the meat, eh? The meat just doesn't think by itself, <laughs> does it? Well, it does. In <laughs> fact, as you know, that I'm going to say that. So, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, but I I do admit uh, it's not really an admission; it's an acknowledgement that in the modern world, given what we know uh, and what we don't know, which is a lot, the most respectable challenge to pure naturalism is from people who don't think it will ever be able to explain consciousness or the mind, the mind-body problem. Even if you can explain sort of the functions of a brain, that's what philosopher David Chalmers calls the easy problem of consciousness. How do you see things? How do you experience things? How, do you, how does your memory work and so forth? What he calls the hard problem is how do you experience what it is like, that inner subjective feeling that something is going on? And it's an almost impossible gap to bridge because a physicalist like myself, someone who thinks the world is just the physical stuff of the world, will say, well, when you say that you're experiencing something, that is a way of talking, that is a story that you are telling about the motions of the atoms in your body and your brain. And the person who wants to say you need something extra over and above the physical stuff will say, no, it's not. It just can't be. You know, physical stuff can't have experiences like that. So this is why these, this fact that the set of things that can happen at one level of description, at one story, can be a very different set of things. Because it, it's true, your atoms can't have experiences. Atoms are not happy or sad. They're not, you know, lonely. They don't have memories and so forth. But that does not in any way imply that a large collection of atoms arranged in the right way to make up a person can't have experiences, can't have emotions, can't have feelings or aspirations. You, uh, early on in the book, you tell us that we basically know everything we need to know about the universe. Done. <laughs> I think that, no, so, I don't say that. Uh, well, Just close to, to that. Very, very careful because everyone wants to misunderstand this. Right. Uh, I'm, I do not in any sense of the word say that we know all of physics or all we need to know about physics where the physics is almost done. What I say is that there's a specific set of physical things that we do know about, the behavior of certain parts of the world, and the parts that we understand include all of the stuff that makes up you and me. So if we care about the very, very specific subset of physical processes, namely what the particles and fields and atoms and forces inside a person are doing, then we understand the physics behind that stuff. Now, this doesn't tell us how human beings behave. If you want to be a biologist or a psychologist, you don't study particle physics, right? Because it's such a complicated collection of stuff that would be a hilariously inefficient way to learn about human beings. But whatever you learn about human beings, I think that it's going to necessarily be compatible with our best understanding of the physics of what makes us up. If you want to make the claim... There's something confusing that I don't understand about human beings, like the nature of consciousness. Therefore, let's change the laws of physics. I think there's just no warrant for going that far. Well, I think, too, that we may find in the not-too-distant future that people will be studying physics to understand consciousness, morality, and ethics, because I think what the what has emerged from physics is the idea of emergence. Yeah, I think that uh, to study these different things, physics is very, very helpful, but it doesn't provide the answers, right? I mean, physics will never tell you what is right and what is wrong, but it will 
help you figure out how to think about those things because right and wrong are labels we attach to things that happen in the universe, and physics describes what the universe does. You have a lot of really entertaining uh, uh, thought experiments in here. Uh, tell us about why, how we know that mom is or is not a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> the word zombie, for better or for worse, has been popularized in the philosophy literature, again by David Chalmers. He wants to make the case that it can't, he wants to do a thought experiment that will convince you that whatever consciousness is, it can't just be physical matter in motion. And what he says is basically, I can imagine physical matter in motion in the shape of a human being that would act in every observable way exactly like a human being would act, but would not have inner conscious experiences. It would not have a feeling of what it is like to experience the color red, for example. That's the famous example. For whatever reason, we always talk about seeing the color red and experiencing the redness of red. So a zombie is exactly that. A zombie is basically the same collection of atoms as a person would be, but one without inner experiences. So one of the things I say in the book is that that's actually a much harder thing to imagine being possible than you might think. Because we have this vague idea, I can imagine something person-like that doesn't have consciousness. But to really take the thought experiment seriously, this zombie needs to act exactly like a person does. So if that zombie stubs its toe and feels pain, and you say, why are you cry crying out? The zombie would say, I feel pain. And you would say, no, you don't really because you're a zombie and you don't experience the experience of pain. You might think you're doing it, but you're lying. So zombies are always lying about their inner mental experiences. Otherwise, they'd be able to tell us they were a zombie. And that would mean they were not exacting in this, acting in exactly the same way as a regular conscious person. I think this is so fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, let's bring up uh, David Hume and a discussion of is and ought. <laughs> David Hume is definitely one of the uh, heroes of poetic naturalism and naturalism more generally. And one of the great things about him was his skepticism. He was both sort of uh, technically a skeptic in the sense that his philosophy relied on being skeptical of, of what we see about the world. But also informally, he was very comfortable with not knowing everything with absolute certainty. In the philosophical tradition, there are many, many examples of this or that attempt to found with absolute certainty our knowledge of the world or our feelings about right and wrong and what is ethical and so forth. And Hume was always much more modest than that. And he pointed out in a famous passage that in many, many philosophical texts, people will be talking about describing the world. This is what happens. That's what happens. Here's how it happens. And then suddenly, like magic, they're saying, this is what ought to happen. This is what should happen. This is right and this is wrong. And he says, how does this magical transformation happen? And I think that his point is extremely valid. And yet, even many centuries after he did it, still philosophers keep trying to derive ought from is. And I, I strongly think it's just not possible. How do we account for, how does modern quantum physics account for morality, for caring, for love, for the things that make us human and really are totally unique to our human experience? 
Well, I think that these things like morality and caring and love and, and other uh, feelings that we have are very, very real. In the best poetic naturalist way of thinking, they're as real as, as tables and chairs. They're emergent phenomena. They're words we use to describe human beings, to tell the story of, of we human beings. They're not out there in the world. They're not objective to be found, right? Like if you want to say doing this is right, doing this is wrong, you're welcome to say that. That is a story that you can tell about the world. Killing babies is wrong. But the question is, what happens if someone else comes up and says, no, I think killing babies is good. I think it's a morally right thing to do. You can disagree with them, but you can't do an experiment to show they've made a mistake. They've not made a mistake in the same sense that, that mathematicians make a mistake if they say 2 plus 2 is 5, or in the same kind of mistake that an astronomer would say if they think the universe is contracting rather than expanding. They are saying something that we disagree with, and that's as far as you can go. And many, many people find this just very disconcerting to think that the origin of morality and what we really mean when we talk about right and wrong is an expression of what we human beings individually believe should be true. It's not an expression of any absolute truth about the world. In practice, this is what really happens. In practice, in the real world, real human beings have different beliefs about what is right and what is wrong. And we try to figure out our own personal beliefs for ourselves. And then we talk to each other and try to figure out how we should live in society. So I don't really think it's that scary at all. It's just how the world actually behaves. I think one of the things that's so powerful about this book, I want to bring this back to this idea of poetic naturalism because that's where you start and that's where you leave us with is an idea that what's important about the world is learning to tell the right story for the right level of granularity and understanding where what level of granularity you are addressing when you're telling a story. Absolutely. So one of my favorite quotes that I have in the book is from Muriel Rukeyser, who was a poet, and who said, uh, the world is made of stories, not of atoms. And of course, in some level, and she would have admitted it also, uh, the world is made of atoms. That, that is a story we can tell about the world. That is one level of description we can apply to it. But there's also many other descriptions. We can talk about the world without ever mentioning the, wor the word atoms. And choosing which stories to tell, whether they're scientific stories or moral and ethical stories or stories of uh, seeking and purpose and mattering and caring, that is what brings the world to life in a very real sense. And again, to go back to the beginning of the conversation, that's okay. <laughs> that is not a flaw in how the world is constructed. That is a feature of how the world is constructed. And what it, what it implies is that it's up to us to give the world meaningfulness and to make it matter. It's not something that is given to us from outside. And for many people, that's worrisome. It sort of sets us free and unleashes chaos, unleashes chaos upon the world. But it's also kind of liberating. You know, it's a challenge to us to come up with these stories we want to tell about why the world matters to us. But that's a responsibility that we have. And if we make the most of it, we can make the world a pretty good place. I've been speaking with Sean Carroll. He's, his new book is The Big Picture. Thank you for joining me, Sean. My pleasure. Thanks.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.